And uh, I'm glad I found you today as I was sharing with uh, Pastor Scott. I'm a little embarrassed, especially given the uh, story I'm about to tell you to lead into our passage today as I was driving down here, live outside of Augusta, and uh, put your address in my GPS on my phone and uh, thought I'm going to be a little bit early. This is good. I like to be that way. And uh, I'm going to be there at 9.08. And uh, as I pull in, I'm in a little neighborhood, a little quaint little neighborhood. Uh, and I'm at 7 Brayburn Road in Portland, uh, which does exist. And as I learned this morning, is 15 minutes from here, uh, 7.2 miles uh, from here. And so as I uh, sat in that little neighborhood, I thought, I'm in the wrong spot. <laughs> and uh, so I'm glad I made it here this morning. And like I said, that's a little bit embarrassing, uh, given that I was going to tell you a story about some guys 200 years ago who found their way uh, somewhere far, far, far further uh, than I was driving this morning. For it was in uh, 1803 that uh, President Thomas Jefferson, he negotiated what we know as the Louisiana Purchase. He, he, he bought all this large portion of land that makes up most of the Midwest and Western United States. And at that point, the United States only extended as far west as the Mississippi River. And so he was able to buy that land, but then he wanted to explore that land, find out, hey, what did we just buy? So to do that, he appointed some people that we know their names. He appointed his personal secretary, a man by the name of Meriwether Lewis. This will help you if you're a Jeopardy fan. Uh, and Lewis brought along a, an explorer, a guy who was really good, uh, exploring the frontier by the name of William Clark. And Jefferson gave these guys a direct mission. He said, find a direct route from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean. And so these guys went out on a two-year expedition, 1804 to 1806, and they brought a brave, brave, brave crew along with them. And these people ventured out into the great unknown, passed through incredibly difficult terrain, through Indian territory, over the Rocky Mountains, all kinds. I can't even imagine what they had to go through. Round trip, 8,000 miles. And they came back, and they had drawn maps which I could have used this morning. They drew maps and presented them back to Thomas Jefferson of the passageway to the new land. It's so easy all these 200 plus years later to just take something like that for granted. You read it in the history book and you, and you just kind of move on because today we can just hop on a plane, right? And uh, I got to go to the West Coast uh, for a meeting in, in June and I was just changing my flights yesterday. I'm going through going, oh, that's going to mean eight and a half hours of travel. Now that's too long. Well, I was doing that yesterday. And these guys, two years of going off into the unknown, imagine with me the courage it took. Imagine the courage it took to step out into the unknown frontier, the risks, the dangers, the uncertainties, but they went anyway. They went anyway and they fulfilled President Jefferson's mission. Fast forward to our lives today. You know, when it comes to stepping out in faith, when it comes to wholeheartedly chasing after God's mission for your life and for your church, oftentimes we only focus on how challenging it's gonna be. Oftentimes we only focus on the risks and the dangers and the uncertainty. And we come up with a long list of why we can't. Fear doesn't have to keep us from stepping out in faith. 
Fear does not have to keep us from stepping out into an unknown future. Yes, it generates some anxiety within us when we step out in faith into the unknown in our personal lives, in our families, and in our churches. Yeah, that, that's kind of real. There's a little bit of trepidation there. But the reality is you can do it. You can do it. As you cling to certain biblical truths, you can step out and fulfill your God-given responsibility to step out in faith. Because, you know, these fears are nothing new. We're going to be in a few moments in Numbers chapter 13 there in the Old Testament. We're going to find that these fears are nothing new. Way, way back in the Old Testament, even beginning with Abraham back early in the book of Genesis, we know that God promised his people a, a land. They called it the promised land, the land of, of Canaan. And then from Abraham, you fast forward to where we're going to be today about seven centuries later, and we're going to find God's people on the brink of stepping into that very land that they've been hearing about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They're now just a stone's throw from that very place that God's been talking about. The journey is soon going to be over. Now think about our own impatience. You know what it's like if you've been on a road trip with young children. If it's three hours, four hours, five hours, what do you constantly hear from the back seat? Are we? Yeah. Imagine how many times in 700 years the leaders of God's people heard that annoying question. Are we there yet? But before they step into the land, God has some advanced planning he wants them to do, some keys he wants them to hold on to, to cling to before they enter in. So as you take a look at your outline there, we'll be in Numbers 13. Here's the big idea. Here's where we're going today. Even though there were challenges ahead, we're going to find in our passage that Caleb was not afraid to step out in faith. He was not afraid to step out in faith. And that applies to us today. Maybe way back all those years ago, but the same thing is true today, that despite all the challenges ahead, God still calls you and I to step out in faith. So the question that we're going to ask and, and answer from our text today in Numbers 13 is this, how? It's the, it's the question we all have, how? How can I gain the courage to do this, to step out in faith? And from our text, we're going to find three sources of courage, three sources of courage for stepping out in faith. Again, Numbers 13, and I hope you find it, that's kind of one of those books where you got to peel the pages apart, you know, they kind of stick together there because it's one of those books we're sometimes afraid to read. So I trust you can peel those pages apart between 12 and 14 and get to Numbers 13. And here's the first source of courage you find there in your outline. Number one, you can step out in faith as you remember that the mission, the mission is commanded by God. The mission is commanded by God. Let's begin reading there at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of your fathers you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So who's the speaker here, God. The speaker is the Lord. What's the command? Send out. Send out men to spy out the land. 
Now, as, as, I, as I did some study on this, on this word spy out that I'm reading from the New King James here, it literally means to give careful examination of. Some of your translations may say search or explore or scout out. It literally means give careful examination of. This doesn't mean just, just take a peek. It means really take a look at study the land. So the command here is to make this kind of reconnaissance mission into the land of Canaan. But notice that the command comes with a great reminder. The reminder that this is the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. This is not just any land. This is the land with a capital L, the one you've been hearing about for centuries and centuries. The same one that God appeared to Abraham and said, you know what? Go to a land that I will show you. And when he got there, he said, this is the land that to your descendants, I'm going to give it. This isn't just any random piece of real estate. This is the land. God says, go check it out. Then move down to verse number 17. We have just seen just be prior to this, they list the names of all, I'm gonna to get to that a little bit later, but the names of all the leaders from each tribe are gonna go. And then verse 17 says, then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up this way into the south, go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. He's getting very specific with his commands here. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether their land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests or not. Some very, very specific commands for this reconnaissance mission. He says, check out the land. Is it good, bad, rich, poor, forest, not? Check out the people. Are they strong? Or are they weak? Are there a lot of them? Are there very few of them? Check out the cities. Are they camps, kind of just laid out in the plain? Or are they strongholds, very fortified? Because all this is going to make a difference as to how we take this land. And at the end of verse 20, he adds two more commands. He says, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Well, this first command, yeah, we can kind of sink our teeth into, be of good courage. As we move forward into unknowns in our lives, it takes courage, doesn't it? It takes a lot of, of courage. God knows we need to hear that, knows we need to be reminded of that. But the second command is kind of easy to just skip over. Kind of like, yeah, 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 let me get on to the next verse. He says, Bring back some of the fruit. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, bring a souvenir back from the land. What do souvenirs do? They remind us of where we've been. Anyone got those mouse ears with your name stitched on the back? Guys, you don't have to admit it. Raise your hands if you do, but you know what I'm saying? You remember your trip to Disney or you remember your trip here, there. My wallet that I carry, I got on a mission trip seven years ago in Nicaragua. That thing is so well built, either that or I don't use it much, I don't know, but I, every time I take that thing out, I remember my trip to Nicaragua when I pull my wallet out. 
You've all got souvenirs of places you've been. They remind you of that trip. God says, bring back some grapes from the land because that's gonna be a needed reminder about the fruitfulness of the promised land. So up to this point, the mission's been clearly established. God says, go. Now it's a matter of following through. It's a matter of following through with the mission because it's the follow through that makes all the difference. Just knowing the mission in our heads is not enough. The follow through is what makes all the difference. I've had a long time obsession with the US Secret Service. I think back when I was a kid, I wanted to be a Secret Service agent. That was just kind of my thing. And I really think that began when I was in the seventh grade. It was March the 30th, 1980. And some of you are old enough to remember this. Uh, President Reagan was, was leaving, uh, giving a speech right down the street from the White House. And he was walking out of the hotel where he gave the speech. And he had about a 30-foot walk to his limousine. Very routine day uh, for the Secret Service. And they're literally a mile down the street from the White House. And so you would think that they could almost cut corners, you know, 30 feet from here to there into the safety of his limousine and right back to the safety of the White House. But here's what the Secret Service knows. Their mission is to protect the President of the United States. So there are no cutting corners. There are no kind of, this is an easy one. And thankfully on that day, they fulfilled their mission perfectly. Because just before he got in the limousine and as he waved uh, to a crowd of people and reporters, right then a man named John Hinckley reached over in the crowd with a gun and he fired six shots in the direction of the president. He hit the pre well, one of the president's staff. He hit a uh, DC police officer and one bullet actually ricocheted off the limousine and did strike the president. But that day would have been far, far more tragic if it were not for the actions of a particular Secret Service agent by the name of Tim McCarthy. Tim McCarthy was right near the president, and as soon as the shots started to, to fire toward the president, Tim McCarthy did what they're taught to do, make yourself big. And with President Reagan behind him, Tim McCarthy did this, and he took a bullet to the stomach, a bullet that would have been a direct hit to the president. You see, Tim McCarthy lived to tell his story, and the president, of course, made it through that tragic day. But you see, Tim McCarthy had to do more than simply know that the mission existed. He then had to take that mission to do anything possible to protect the President of the United States, and he had to put that mission into action. He had to follow through. God does the same thing in our own lives. He says, yeah, you know my mission, that's great. Are you gonna follow through? Are you gonna follow through? God's mission here in the book of Numbers is very, very clear. Go spy out the land. Have courage on the journey. But that head knowledge is not enough. It's the follow-through that makes all the difference in the world. Here we are 3,400 years later, and not a whole lot has changed. Not a whole lot has changed. God's mission for the church is very, very clear. Pastor Scott quoted it earlier. Go and make disciples. Matthew chapter 28. We refer to those last couple of verses of Matthew's gospel as the great commission. The great commission to believers 
and to churches. A disciple is a follower, a follower, a student of Jesus. That's what the word disciple means. And so when Jesus said, go make followers, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, go make church members. He didn't say, go make Southern Baptists. He didn't say, go make Sunday school teachers. He didn't say any of that. He said, make disciples, make followers, make students of me. Why? Because disciples properly trained are going to want to be good church members. Disciples properly trained are going to want to be teaching God's word in whatever setting is possible. Disciples properly trained are going to want to be sharing their faith with their neighbors and coworkers. Disciples properly trained are going to love their communities and going to want to serve their communities. Go and make disciples, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ want their church to be that city set on a hill, that place where transformation takes place, a place where people come and get encouraged and lifted up and connect into other lives but they get motivated, motivated to go out so that others will hear the good news. That's what disciples are. That's what disciples do. Now, can I, can I whine for a minute here? Is it all right if I whine? I've done a lot of reading over the years on church growth philosophies, and it was popular for a long time to a lot of books that talk about this, this concept called, and, and it's an important concept, but. It, as I look back, it might be too much emphasis. This concept called closing the back door of the church. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it means the idea that, and this is real, people come to churches, sometimes checking them out, and they come in, but they don't make connections. They don't buy in, they don't really hear a vision to buy into. They don't build any relationships. And what do they do? They, as the term goes, they slip out the back door. And no one knows they were there because no one connected with them, so no one knew their name. Or no one really built a relationship, no one followed up with them and then they're gone. And so there's been a lot of writing in church growth over the years about we need to close the back door of the church. People come in, we gotta make sure they don't just slip out like that. That is important, don't, don't hear me wrong. But, but here's what I'm seeing as even more important than closing the back door of the church. It's even more important, I believe, to make sure that the front door of the church is a revolving door. And by that, I mean that believers come in on Sundays or whenever, and they come in and they're connected with one another and they get motivated and challenged and encouraged to take what happens here and to revolve right out through that door into the community, into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces, into your schools, into all your other relationships and be able to say, hey, something's happening in that church and it's all because God is radically transforming lives. That is a church growth philosophy that I'd love to see the churches of Maine adopt and fulfill because that's what our communities need. Our communities need us to go in a revolving door and get out into those places. The mission of the church is clear. The mission of the church is commanded by God. Here's the application on this first point. You can scribble this down in your notes. I will step out. I will step out and courageously be part of God's plan. 
Folks, as you unite around together in this church, around this common mission, God's mission, then you've got a common purpose. Yeah, that's what unites you. And you've got a common purpose. The mission is not up for debate. But then the vision, which is different from the mission, the vision is, hey, what would it look like locally here in our community if we as a people were fulfilling the mission that God gave us? What would this neighborhood look like if we were fulfilling the mission? Help us build a portrait, a picture. That's what vision is, a picture of the future as it must be. That's what a vision is. How's God going to use this church to paint that picture, to fulfill God's mission in this place? You can step out in faith as you remember the mission is commanded by God, but there's a second truth that I want you to remember and grasp today. It's this. You can step out in faith as you remember that the missionaries are called by God. The mission is commanded by God. The missionaries are called by God. Back in Numbers 13, let me reread the chapter, uh, verse 2 and 3, and then verse 16. Remember the command, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord. All of them men who are heads of the children of Israel. And then verse 16 after they had just listed all the names of the 12 leaders from the 12 tribes, said, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Joshua. See, in this case, God told these leaders to fulfill the mission, to spy out the land. The names are listed. And we learn in the list of names that Caleb and Joshua are two of the 12 leaders enlisted to spy out the land. You know, in the Old Testament especially, God goes to great length to list lots of names of people assigned to specific tasks. Because I believe you can't separate the missionary from the mission. You can't separate the team member from the task. While the mission was very generic in verse 2, send men out, it then moves to be very more specific. Let's name all these men who are going to be involved, all 12 of them, and which tribe they specifically represent. You know, God does a similar thing in the New Testament. He does a similar thing in the New Testament as he establishes the church. But there, instead of specifically naming certain people to do certain tasks, today we we realize in the New Testament, we're all called to be part of the task of the local church, the mission of making disciples. We're all called to that. It's not just something you hire a pastor to do. It's something we're all called to, all part of. Listen to how how Paul says it in in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who's the head, Christ. Now listen to this, Ephesians 4, 16. Christ, from whom the whole body, here's that body imagery, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself in love. Think about those words. Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. 
What's a joint? Well, of course, the definition has changed these days, but what's a, what's a joint? It's the point at which two things come together. It's that meeting point at which two things come together. And according to this passage I just read you in Ephesians 4, the church can only be effective in accomplishing its mission when the members join together in love. That's that point. If there's no coming together, then the mission's not gonna be accomplished. If there's no love, the mission is not gonna be accomplished. If, if there are members just refusing to use their gifts, refusing to get behind a common mission, then the mission is not gonna be accomplished. You ever watch an ant hill being built? If you got absolutely nothing to do on a Saturday afternoon, this time of year is good, pull a lawn chair up in your backyard and sit around and watch. Ant hills are just amazing because one day, I was mowing my lawn yesterday and I see it's like one day they're not there and the next day they're there. But what happens in the building of an ant? Well, how does it happen so efficiently, so effectively? It's because every ant does its part. When you pull up your lawn chair this spring, and I know you're going to do it now, you're going to be very curious, here's what you're not going to see. You're not going to see a little group of ants standing over the side with their little, I don't know what you call these things, but things crossed like this, criticizing what the other ants are doing. You're not going to see that. You're not going to see some holdout ants saying, no, I'd rather build a different anthill. I don't like this anthill. I would have put that grain of sand over there. I don't know what Fred's doing, but you're not going to see that. Why? Because the mission is clear. And every single ant does its part. And you know what? That was so important that God even decided to use ants as an example in the Bible. If you didn't know this, I read to you from Proverbs chapter 6 where we read, go to the ant, you sluggard, talking about laziness, consider her ways and be wise, having no captain, no overseer, no ruler, they provide her supplies in the summer, gathers her food in the harvest. Ants got their name in the Bible, and you and I didn't. <laughs> yes, leaders, pastors, elders, they're called to go ahead of the people and help prepare the plan of action. However, in the life of the church, we're all called. We're all called as missionaries to take the steps that God has for us to help fulfill the purpose of accomplishing that common mission. You can step out in faith. You can step out in faith. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're part of his team. You're part of his chosen team called the church, the team that he put in place to go and make disciples, the team he put in place to go and reach the state of Maine with the gospel. Here's the application in the second point. I will trust God to use me, to use you, to accomplish his plan in the church. I will trust God to use me to accomplish his plan in the church. You can step out in faith. 
is you remember that the mission's commanded by God. The missionaries are called by God. But finally this morning, I want you to see in this, pas- this passage that you can step out in faith as you remember that the mood is chosen by us. It's going to get really personal and challenging here in the latter part of our passage. The mood is chosen by us. Numbers chapter 13. Let me begin reading in verse number 21. We just read where God gave the command, be of good courage, bring some fruit of the land. So verse 21 says, so they went up, this is the 12, they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. They went up through the south, came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkel, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkel because of the cluster, it just means cluster, which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So what's happening here in verse 21? It says they went. So the leaders obeyed. They went out to spy out the land. And then verse 23, they brought back souvenirs. They cut down some grapes. But now jump down to verse number 26. Here's where it starts to get tough. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them, to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So they lead with the grapes. Then they told them, they told him and said, we went to the land, pat on the back, we're obedient where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They're like, yes, we've obeyed. We went, we brought back the souvenir. Here's the souvenir. But now look at how verse 28 starts. My translation says, nevertheless. Yours may say, but, or however. Uh Uh-oh. Whenever you start a sentence with God was right, but let that be a red flag. Let that be a red flag in in not only in your scripture reading, but in your own life. God, you were right. However, you don't know the whole story. God, you were right, but you don't know my coworkers. They're not interested. God, you were right, but my husband and I, my wife and I, we just don't get along. My husband, uh, God, you were right, but be careful. Let that be a, a red flag. The people, what do they say about the people? Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land, they're strong. The cities, they're fortified. They're large. We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites, they dwell in the land. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, all the ites are there. Canaanites are there. What's going on? This telling how scary it is, how uncertain it is, how, how risky it is in the land. You know, I was reading recently some survey results about spiritual beliefs here in the state of Maine. You might want to scribble some of these down. They're they're not in your notes, but just just listen to these numbers. 
Here is the question. Jesus actually rose from the dead. In the state of Maine, 47% agreed. National average is about 52. Now the question said, belief in Jesus does not require participation in a church. State of Maine, about 48% agreed with that. U.S. average was about 50%. Church basically is not necessary with Christianity. But here's one I want you to really hear. Jesus is the only way for human salvation from sin. The state of Maine, a little under 37% agreed that was true, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. National average, 44%. Much lower here in the state of Maine. Folks, these are scary results. These are scary statistics. No wonder it's so difficult to grow a church here in the state of Maine when 50% of people, even nationwide, don't even believe church is necessary for Christianity. And when only a little over a third believe Jesus is necessary here in the state of Maine for salvation. Here's the question, though. It's not how scary is this. The question is this. Will these statistics scare us away from the mission? Will these statistics scare us away from the mission? Jump with, into verse 30 with me. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. He said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. It seems like out of nowhere, in the midst of this negative report, Caleb, who he represents tribe Judah, and he, he makes this startling report. Hey, let's go take the land. Let's go take the land. We can do this, people. You can almost see him. You can almost see the eyes rolling at him, too. Like, who is this guy? Look at verse 31. The men who had gone up with them said, we're not able to go up against the people. Why? Because they're stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they'd spied out, saying, the land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. Interesting, they all returned, so that didn't happen. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Then we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. See, what happens here is the naysayers, they jump in. They take the floor and they're like, no, 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 Caleb. Guys, don't listen to him. Let me tell you what we saw. They're stronger than us. We can't do this. He's like, Caleb, let me describe it this way. They're giants. And we're like grasshoppers. Giants eat grasshoppers. Don't negative reports from naysayers tend to get a little exaggerated? Don't you find that true in life? Naysayers tend to exaggerate. Remember, these guys partially obeyed. They did what God said. They spied out the land. They, they brought back the souvenir. But then their report moved 10 of the 12 of them to fear. 10 to say, no, we can't do this. So let me ask you, did all 12 spies see the same land? The answer is yes. Did all 
12 spies see the same giants? The answer is yes. Did they all see the same obstacles? The answer is yes. So how is it that 10 of them returned with a radically different view of the future? Well, I believe, I believe the answer is this. I didn't read this verbatim from here, but I believe from reading this text that this is, is true. I put it in your notes. The majority opinion, the opinion of the 10, was based on the idea that taking the land was merely a suggestion and not a command. It was merely a suggestion and not a command. See, only the minority viewed what God said through Moses as a command and not an option, not a suggestion. They knew that they weren't going in to vote on whether to take the land. That was not the purpose of the mission. The purpose of the mission was to spy it out so they could do some advanced planning to put a plan together to take the land, not to decide whether to vote on God's plan or not and perhaps not go in. He sent them in to learn how to trust him, to learn how to trust him in the midst of an uncertain future. Folks, obstacles in the Christian life and obstacles in God's church are not licenses to view God's mission as optional. And oftentimes we do that. We say we, we can't do this and we can't do that because the uncertainties are so great and the risks are so great and there are giants in my life and there are giants in my world and there are giants in my workplace and there are giants everywhere. You fill in the blank what the giants are for you, but do you use those giants as a reason to not follow through with God's plan? Folks, I read you the statistics. These are not the days to sit on the sidelines. These are not the days to say it's too scary to take the land. These are not the days to withhold our time, to withhold our talents, to withhold our treasures from God's mission. These are not the days to live as if the mission to make disciples has suddenly become optional. Yes, the statistics are dark. I read them to you. But the mission stands firm. The mission stands firm. Notice that when the spies made this negative report, you might miss this in the text. They had the nerve to tell why God's mission could not take place, could not be fulfilled. And they did this after they had just shown off a huge cluster of grapes. Now we read, we think grapes. Right? I had grapes with lunch yesterday, and I pulled a few out of the thing and put them on my plate. It said that they carried these how? On a pole. One person on one end, one on the other. This was no little cluster of grapes like you're going to get at Hannaford. Okay, this is some massive thing we can't even imagine, and pomegranates, hanging off this pole. And they actually bring that in and say, oh, yeah, yeah, here are the grapes, but oh, there's big giants in the land, we can't go. Think about that. We, we, we see what God can do. They could trust God for food, but they couldn't trust him for anything else. And they had the nerve, the nerve to negatively influence all the people who were listening. You know, today, too many followers of Jesus Christ have no problem trusting them with eternity. It's just today and tomorrow that we can't trust them with. 
No problem with, oh, let's think about heaven and streets of gold and all that. And it's like, oh, but I can't trust him today with my job, with my kids, with my grandkids, with my marriage, with my health, with my finances. It doesn't make sense. Obstacles are opportunities for faith. Opportunities for faith. Here's the final application this morning. I will choose to maintain a godly attitude and move toward the mission together. I will choose. It's a choice. It's up to us, our attitude that we bring to the mission. I started out by telling you about the expedition to the West Coast and the maps that they drew to help further explorers. I want to close by telling you about another map, interesting map that's on display at the British Museum in London. Dates back to the early 1500s, it's an old mariner's chart, and it outlines the North American coastline before it was ever explored and, and the waters that we now call the Atlantic Ocean. And the map maker 500 years ago made some interesting notes on the face of this map these unknown territories, he wrote words like this. He said, here be giants, here be dragons, here be fiery serpents. Hundreds of years later, early 1800s, the map came into the hands of a British explorer by the name of John Franklin. And instead of caving in to the fear which the original map maker had overlaid on that map and on those lands, Franklin instead wrote some new words across that map. He wrote, here is God. Here is God. Now I want you this morning to imagine a map of the state of Maine. Imagine with me that vast expanse of 1.3 million people from the Canadian border down to the New Hampshire border and from the ocean back west to the mountains of Maine. Imagine with me all those people, and what I've told you, what people don't believe about God and about Jesus and about heaven and about hell, and what we can do is we can paint those very negative statistics across that map, and what that will lead us often to do is to pull on the shades, lock the door, come into our churches on Sunday mornings, get encouraged, but go out and pretend nothing happened. Or, or we can paint something else across that map. We can picture the state of Maine and 1.3 million people and we can paint these words, here is God. And then we have a choice. We have a choice to make. We can go our merry way and pretend nothing's wrong or we can come in here and get motivated and get fired up and go out the revolving door to change the spiritual landscape of Maine. Because the mission is clear. It's defined by God. Go and make disciples. The missionaries, that's you and I, we've been called to a task. But the mood, the attitude we bring to the task, that's up to each and every one of us. Will we let negative, scary statistics keep us huddled in our churches and outside of our communities? Or will we go out and see what God can do and bring back those Grapes. What are you going to do, church? What are you going to do? Let's do this together throughout the state of Maine. Let's pray together this morning. God, I just thank you, Lord.
for accounts like this, thousands of years old, but so, so true and vital to our lives today. I just thank you for preserving this in, our, in the word of God for us to be challenged by today. Lord God, I thank you for this church where they sit right here in the city. Credible opportunity. Lord, I just pray that you'd encourage them, give the leadership the vision. Lord, let the church just grab hold of that and move forward to make great impact with the gospel, both in this neighborhood and this community and beyond as we unite together as churches in Maine to make disciples, to bring hope to the hopeless. Lord, to see you radically transform lives. Lord, we trust you fully for this. In Jesus' name, amen.